You're listening to the Water Cooler Podcast, coming to you from the Menzies Research Centre in Sydney. the year of the pandemic we seem to be suffering from a surfeit of navel gazing let's face it there are greater threats to our way of life than COVID-19 I was reminded of this in a conversation with Lieutenant General HR McMaster a former national security advisor to President Donald Trump and one of the architects of the new China policy in McMaster's view Western democracies and the US in particular have lulled themselves into a false sense of security by imagining the world as they would want it to be, one where international dealings conform to established rules as the world moves ever closer towards universal freedom and democracy. Yet, Liberal government is under threat from home and abroad. And in his new book, Battlegrounds, The Fight to Defend the Free World, McMaster uses his background in military history and as a serving military commander to try to explain our current predicament the 413 days he spent on the staff of President Trump puts him in a unique position to assess not just the challenges, but the ability of world leaders to rise to them. H.R. McMaster's joined me and some distinguished guests at a recent Menzies Research Centre National Security Forum hosted in cooperation with AmCham Australia. H.R., your book was keenly awaited by the President's enemies and supporters alike, both hoping for ammunition in the run-up to the election. Tell me, are you here to bury Caesar or to praise him? Well, I, I guess neither, uh, Nick. I, I, do, I do write in the, in the author's note in the, in the preface that this is not the book that, that it seemed like everybody wanted me to write, right? And, and, and uh, those who were in favour of the President wanted me to write that you know, he was a visionary who had changed American foreign policy for the better, and others who were or against the president, wanted me to write, you know, he's the, you know, the bigoted, bigoted narcissist, you know, who uh, is a danger to, uh, to the country and, and the world. But, you know, Nick, I mean, as we've been at each other's throats in the United States, uh, from a, a partisan political perspective, none of these challenges have, have gone away. And what I hope that the book will do is bring readers together across the free world so we can have a meaningful discussion about these challenges and decide what we have to do together to build a, a better future for generations to come. And uh, and of course, you know, I'm I'm not I don't hesitate to criticize uh, Trump administration policies in in the book, uh, as as I don't hesitate to criticize other administration policies. But I think it's really important for us at this point within America, but really across the free world, uh, to come together and and work together much more effectively. Can I take you to Russia and to Vladimir Putin? A colleague of yours at the Hudson Institute, Peter Robinson, summed up your view of Putin as being a cross between an old school czar and Tony Soprano. Is that accurate? Well, well you know, Vladimir Putin, of course, comes, you know, comes from the KGB. Uh, he is an operator, and as I describe him in the book. And, and what I think is most important to understand about Vladimir Putin are the emotions and the ideology that, that drives his behavior. In particular, I describe Putin as a, as a man uh, who is suffering from a sense of honor lost with the collapse of the Soviet Union at the, at the end of the Cold War. And so therefore he is determined to restore Russia to national greatness. He is of course cognizant of the fact that he doesn't really have the resources necessary to compete uh, with the Western world, with, with us head to head. Uh, and so what he's determined to do is to drag all of us down, particularly in Europe and the United States to, to polarize our, our, our societies, to pit us against each other, 
to reduce our confidence in our democratic principles and institutions and, and, and processes. And so he is engaged in the sustained campaign of what I describe as disruption, disinformation, and, and denial against us. Uh, and so it's, it's very important, I think, for us to, to be able to, to understand what motivates him so we disabuse ourselves of this illusion uh, that we're going to have a better relationship with him and he's going to fundamentally change his behavior. We know uh, that the Russians were heavily involved in trying to influence the last election, 2016. How heavily involved were they and how heavily are they involved this time around? Well, they were very heavily involved. And what, what I do in Battlegrounds is I tell the, the story of the interference in the election in context of this sustained campaign of political subversion. And what the Russians want to do in the context of the election is divide Americans on any issue that is already divisive. So, for example, in 2016, about 80% of the bot and, and, and troll traffic from the Internet Research Agency was aimed at issues of race, at appropriating websites and, and organizations in a way that, that drove Americans toward polar extremes. A distant second was, it was on issues of immigration and, and, uh, and also in the, in the, in the lesser category were, were, was uh, the issue of gun control, for example. And, and so I think that it got a lot better. Uh, I was par partly responsible for uh, for us improving our ability to defend against uh, against this campaign of subversion and against election interference. And I think that that Americans should be very confident in 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 the security of their electorate election system. There have been a lot of new uh, standards put in place, working with our very decentralized system at the state level to, to ensure that election results can be not cannot be tampered with. And then I think very, very importantly, we changed some of the authorities associated with our cyber forces in recognition of, of the fact, Nick, that you can't have a good cyber defense without a good offense. And there was a, there was a dramatic shift, I think, in, in, the, in effectiveness downward uh, by the, the Internet Research Agency and, and Russia in the 2018 elections. And I feel confident about the 2020 elections, except, you know, I just wish we'd stop being our own worst enemies, Nick, because we play into their hands uh, with you know, how divided we've become in, in America. And then what I write about in Battlegrounds is the tendency of both parties to compromise principle uh, for, for partisan uh, expediency. And, uh, and I think we, we, have to, we have to transcend uh, this, uh, you know, this, uh, this partisanship and, and work together as Americans. One of the big themes of your book uh, is strategic narcissism. It's your, the way you, you, you diagnose Australia's or America's current uh, position, the tendency to view the world only in relation to the United States and to assume that the future course of events de depends primarily on US decisions and plans. How did that strategic narcissism arise and what's its consequences? I think you might argue that it's always been a problem in America. America tends to to be very optimistic and to think that, hey, eventually the world's going to come around to the way that America does things and to our system and so forth. But I think the problem became particularly acute in the post-Cold War period. And of course, we had reason to be confident in the post-Cold War period with the collapse of the Soviet Union, with the lopsided military victory over Saddam Hussein's army in Iraq, for example. But I think that optimism in the, in the 1990s led to complacency. And it led to broad acceptance of what are clearly, in retrospect, fundamentally flawed assumptions about the so-called new world order. First of all, that ideological competition was, was a relic of the past. Uh, 
great power competition uh, was passe. And then, of course, this belief in this revolution in military affairs that gave our advanced Western militaries a, a tremendous technological differential advantage that guaranteed our, our security. And so I, I think it was a setup, Nick. This was a setup for shocks and disappointments uh, in the 2000s, the mass murder attacks, certainly, of 9-11, during which terrorists bypassed our, our military prowess with box cutters and airplanes killing nearly 3,000 innocents. And then the unanticipated length and difficulty of the wars in Iraq and Afghanistan. Then, of course, the financial crisis. And, and then that shook our confidence, I believe. And that, that emotional impetus behind policy shifted from overconfidence to pessimism and resignation. And, and I think both forms of either underestimating the, the costs and risks of action, I think invasion of Iraq in 2003 is a case in point, or underappreciating the risks and costs of inaction and disengagement, such as the complete withdrawal of Iraq in December of 2011, uh, or, or decisions uh, you know, not to act in a, in a way that, that could have uh, constrained and, and ameliorated the humanitarian crisis in Syria, uh, especially the unenforced red line. Uh, are examples of strategic narcissism. And of course, what's the, the problem with, with, with defining the world only in relation to you is you're not considering uh, the agency, the influence, the authorship over the future that others have, especially uh, your, your rivals, adversaries, and, and enemies. So on that point, can I take you to perhaps the most uh, egregious example of our uh, wishful thinking, wanting to see the world in our terms rather than it actually is, and, and that's China, the country that refuses to play by our script. Um, we used to think I was the correspondent in there in the early 90s, and we still thought that even post-Yanaman, that economic opening up would eventually lead to some form of liberal democracy. That hasn't happened, and you've been responsible, I think, uh, for helping to change attitudes in the American administration on that. Tell me about it. Uh, what what you know, I was I obviously determined not to not to uh, make the same mistakes that I had identified in national security decision making and policy making during the Vietnam period in, in, a, in a previous book entitled Dereliction of Duty. One of, one of those pitfalls I found was that we, Americans during this period of time under, in Lyndon Johnson's administration rushed to action, right? Just get some bombing runs off, get the first troops deployed, deployed, and we'll figure it out later. So we put into place a a process in which we held a framing session. We applied design thinking to these first order challenges that we were facing. And part of that framing was to understand these challenges on their own terms, to apply what I call in the book and a, a term I borrow from the historian Zachary Shore, strategic empathy, the ability in, in particular to, to, to understand better what drives and constrains the other, especially emotions and, and ideology. And as we convened this principles committee framing session on China, I read a couple of, of excerpts from previous China policies and just made the observation that we were about to affect the biggest shift in US foreign policy since the end of the Cold War, because we were now making what, what was the implicit assumption that underpinned those policies explicit, testing it and finding it to be false. And that's the assumption that China having been welcomed in to the international order would play by the rules. Would, would, as it prospered, liberalize its economy and liberalize its form of governance. It, it was painfully clear by, by 2017 that that was not the case. And so we replaced those assumptions with a new set of assumptions. And we shifted the strategy from cooperation and engagement to competition. 
I know Australia has been an extremely strong partner with us on this. The recent quad ministerial in, in Tokyo is an example of that. You know, I, I often point to John Gardot's groundbreaking work uh, on, on on Chinese influence in, in Australia and and how that work inspired uh, a great deal of other very important investigative journalist uh, efforts uh, around the world, including in the U.S. So, so I, I think that I think the free world is coming to its senses on this, Nick. I think it took longer than, than it should have, uh, but I think now we recognize the danger that that China poses to its own people, certainly. Uh, with this campaign of cultural genocide in Xinjiang, the extension of the party's arm of repression into, into Hong Kong, but increasingly uh, how the party is now exporting this authoritarian mercantilist model in a much more aggressive way through programs like One Belt, One Road, how programs like military civil fusion uh, are meant to gain a differential advantage, not only in the emerging data-driven economy, uh, but, but also militarily. And then, and then this 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 program of Made in China 2025, which includes a sustained campaign of industrial espionage. So I, I think that I think we're we're awake to these threats now. It is a very dangerous time right now. We can talk more about that, I guess, like uh, because I think in many ways, COVID-19 has catalyzed uh, many of these challenges that, in battlegrounds and 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 this this challenge associated with the Chinese Communist Party uh, in particular. How would you feel um, about? Uh an Australian state joining up to Belt and Road, because that has happened, the state of Victoria. Is that something that should alarm us a little or alarm us a lot? I think it should alarm you a lot <laughs> because, you know, these, these, uh, these great deals come with strings attached. Uh, you know, there, there are, you can really get quite a bit uh, at a discount uh, from China, especially in the area of telecommunications. Uh, but the price for that is, of course, that you're transferring your data uh, to, to Beijing. And I think it's unrealistic, Nick, to expect the Chinese Communist Party to treat our citizens better than they treat their own people. And so I, I think that uh, I, I would make sure you look very carefully at the terms of the agreement. Certainly, I think in Australia, with the degree of transparency and rule of law that you have, it, it wouldn't be as, as great of a risk, I, I would think, as it is with other countries in which the, you know, the, the vanguard of the, the new vanguard of the Chinese Communist Party uh, arrives uh, in the form of a party official accompanied by a national bank official with duffel bags of cash, you know, to spread around, uh, to buy influence, and then to indebt those countries uh, beyond what they can service uh, so they can create servile relationships. Um, you know, the strings that come attached, obviously, Nick, are those involving, uh, are those involving uh, you know, the, the, um, the, 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 the expectation uh, that you will support the Chinese Communist Party's foreign policy. You know, I, I write about this in, in, in the book as a, as a campaign of co-option, coercion, uh, and, and concealment. And of course, there, there are many examples of this, uh, of states uh, that are coerced to support the party's policies and the repression of its own people, uh, but, there, but, but at companies as well. I mean, the, the, the National Basketball Association uh, in the U.S. just being one of the more dramatic and, and recent examples of that. Let's stay in, uh, in North Asia and just uh, make a side trip, if you like, to the Korean Peninsula. So you were, if I understand you right from the book, you were a little bit sceptical about the idea of a summit between uh, President, uh, President Trump and his, and his counterpart in North Korea. Uh, but you thought that Trump was such a sort of unconventional character, something might just come out of it. So in hindsight, where did that get us? Well, it really got us, I think, nowhere, <laughs> but, it did, but it didn't make the situation worse, I think, because that, uh, the Trump administration adhered 
to, to, to the principles that we established at the outset uh, that, that, we, that we meant to underpin a sustained foreign policy approach toward North Korea. And, and that, that policy approach is really based on this testing this thesis, Nick, that we can convince Kim Jong-un uh, that he is less safe with the weapons than, than he is without them. And to do that through a campaign of maximum pressure, we were determined you know, not to repeat the failed pattern of previous efforts. And in particular, just to give concessions up front you know, for the privilege of talking to the North Koreans and to, and to make payoffs and so forth. This is, I think, what frustrated Kim in Hanoi. He was expecting that same kind of behavior, didn't get it, uh, and the summit failed. And I think for good reason that we should celebrate the failure of that summit. I think what's important now, though, is to continue to marshal international support for increasing the pressure on North Korea. Uh, as you know, the, the regime is under some significant pressure now. It's really hard to tell, right? Because it's hard to, to really see uh, across the 38th parallel with any degree of clarity. But you know, the country, I think, has probably more than zero COVID cases, <laughs> which, is what, uh, which is what Kim Jong-un claims. Uh, it's, the, the country's been ravaged by floods. Um, the COVID-19 effect of shutting down trade was maybe the best means of enforcing U.S. Security Council uh, resolutions. And there are signs of, of increasing desperation on the part of the regime, uh, in particular with the frenzied pace uh, uh, that, with which they're undertaking uh, cyber criminal activity to generate revenue. So we could do a lot more. Uh, we, we, could, we could interdict more. We could impose costs, secondary sanctions, for example, on Chinese banks to facilitate illicit flows. Uh, to, to, uh, uh, to, to, to North Korea. But I think it's worth testing this, this thesis, Nick, because a nuclear North Korea, Korea is a significant danger to the world, not just because of, of the possession of those weapons, but the effect on the non-proliferation regime and just the fact that North Korea has never met a weapon it didn't try to sell to somebody, including its nuclear program to Syria until the Israeli Defense Forces bombed that facility in 2007. You, you speak of America's commitment problem. You know, you describe it as a post-Vietnam emotional aversion to long-term military commitment. Uh, the consequences in, in Afghanistan, as you say, is that you've been fighting a one-year war 20 times over. Uh, and in Iraq, you gave too little attention, I think, as, as everybody would acknowledge now in hindsight, to, to nation-building. Can the, can the US ever get away from the trauma of Vietnam and, and start doing these things properly? Well, Nick, I think it even extends beyond earlier than Vietnam. This is this is this this uh, uh, this tendency on our part to, to believe really, really that the next war will be fundamentally different from all those that have come before it, and to neglect the importance of consolidating military gains to get the sustainable political outcomes in, in in any other conflict other than just a raid. Right? A raid is a military operation of short duration, uh, limited purpose, and plan to withdraw. But but, but Afghanistan wasn't a raid because what we wanted to do was replace the Taliban with an Afghan government that was capable of ensuring that jihadist terrorists never again used that country, the, the territory, as, as a safe haven, a support base to commit mass murder attacks against us. And, and, and on, on Iraq in, in 2003, you know, we often debate, should we have done it? That, that may be useful, but I think it's more useful to debate who the heck thought it would be easy. Why, why did they think it would be easy? I think, Nick, that the prospects for us learning from these experiences are low uh, because I think we have learned the wrong lessons again. The lesson is, I think, that you know, we, we should have just left instead of trying to shape the political outcome. Well, 
know, what would have happened then? I think it would have been an ugly scenario. I think it's it's it, paradoxically and what I describe in the book, I hope in a way that's convincing, um, is that it was this short-term mentality that, that lengthened these wars, made them longer, made them more costly than they would have been otherwise. And so, you know, nation building doesn't mean we're going to create countries in our own image. I mean, Afghanistan doesn't need to be Denmark, right? Afghanistan just needs to be Afghanistan. And, and I think that our impatience there really led to a, a whole series of problems, which I describe in more detail uh, in the book. Just um, a late breaking news. Let's call it late breaking news from the Middle East. Too late, uh, broke too late for your your book deadline, and and that's the Abraham Accords, the deal between or the, the normalisation of relations between Israel, uh, two two Gulf states, Bahrain, UAE, and and the real thawing of relations with across the Arab world. This seems to me to be a game changer. But I'd like your assessment. Well, Nick, I mean, it isn't very often when you have good news out of the Middle East, and we ought to take a moment to celebrate it, right? I think it is, I think it is good news. And I do, what I do write about in Battlegrounds is how the, how the Arab monarchies, the Gulf states, have concluded really over time that their security interests align with those uh, of, of Israel, and, and in large measure because uh, of, of Iran's 40-year-long proxy war against you know, the great Satan, the United States, the little Satan, Israel, and and those Arab monarchies. And, and I think what's clear is that, is that Iran is pursuing a hegemonic design in the region uh, and, and doing so by keeping the Arab world perpetually weak and enmeshed in a sectarian civil war. It is the application that, that, then of this, this Hezbollah model that gives Iran a great deal of influence. This is where you have a weak government in power that is dependent on Iran for support while Iran grows militias and illegal armed groups outside of that government's control so they can be turned against that government if it acts against Iranian interests. You see that in Lebanon, in Syria, in Iraq, and it's what they're attempting to do uh, in, in Yemen as well. Iran has also directly threatened these Gulf states, obviously, with, you know, with support for, uh, you know, for essentially insurgent uh, groups within Bahrain. Uh, that's a complicated issue, obviously. Uh, but then also the, the missile attacks you know, from Yemen launched into Saudi Arabia, UAE, uh, the, the shortest ship missiles employed off into the Bab al-Mandeb and so forth. And of course, the effort to place a proxy army on the border uh, of Israel uh, as they reinforced Hezbollah with precision rockets. So I think it's, it's, it's a reflection of the alignment of the interests. But also, I think the Trump administration did a pretty good job with this uh, and initiated it early. I think it's worth going back to the president's trip to Riyadh. You know, and I'm sure everybody was scratching their heads like, what the heck is Donald Trump doing going to, going to Saudi Arabia, right? And, and when you look at the speech that he gave and the speech that King Solomon gave, that laid out really a vision for a fundamental shift in the relationship. Now, hey, there have been some big disappointments, right, with uh, the murder of Jamal Khashoggi, for, Khashoggi, for example, a, a journalist and a U.S. resident, um, and, and the way in which uh, Mohammed bin Salman has, has, you know, has, has extended uh, and is consolidating his his uh, grip on power internally. Yeah, but but his vision was to change Saudi Arabia from the problem, you know, a country that had been proselytizing, a, an ideology of hatred and intolerance that was used to recruit jihadist terrorists to, to radicalize uh, young impressionable people into a force for good into countering that ideology. And I think there's been some progress made on this, Nick. I think what the Abraham Accords do is two things. 
first of all, a signal to, to Iran, hey, you know, thanks for pushing us all together. Uh, and, but it also signals to, to the Muslim world, to all of us, this is not a war of, of religion with these jihadist terrorist organizations. This, we are all people of the book. And, and this, is, this is a war against criminals who use a perverted interpretation of Islam to justify their, their criminal acts or to pursue po political objectives. And, and I think that can go a long way, you know, in, in terms of uh, isolating uh, these terrorist organizations from sources of, of ideological support. Uh, I think the, there are implications for the Palestinians, certainly. Um, and, and I think that at some point in the future, hopefully, uh, based on the evolution of, of Israeli domestic politics, but actually, you know, the, the, the nature of the Palestinian Authority and the degree to which the Palestinian Authority can speak for all Palestinians, not only in the West Bank, but also in Gaza, that's a stretch. Crossbrooks aren't good. So that's going to have to be, you know, a, a challenge that is managed, I think, in the near term. Uh, but the Abraham Accords and this sort of outside-in approach to, to, to that, you know, to that very difficult problem, I think progress ought to be celebrated. Hey, the title of your book, Battlegrounds, The Fight to Defend the Free World. You've got that word free, free in there. The defense of the free world is how you know, previous presidents, Ronald Reagan uh, during the Cold War, FDR during the Second World War, used to talk about the battle. And that seems to me from your book, we've got that battle on our hands again. But here's the question. Uh, you quote the late professor and philosopher Richard Rorty in your book as saying, national pride is to countries what self-respect is to individuals, a necessary condition for self-improvement. Do you think, given the partisan divide, the vitriol in American politics, and, and to some extent in other democracies like our own, is this sapping our national pride to such an extent that we will be unable to defend freedom? Well, Nick, it's, I think it's a grave danger. I, I really do. Now, this is not the first time Americans have been divided. This is not the first time that we've engaged in vitriolic partisan discourse. And our, our history is rife with these examples. I think it's worth pointing out it's what our founders feared the most, right? In the, in the Federalist Papers that really laid out the argument for our Constitution, uh, James Madison and Alexander Hamilton wrote about the danger of factions and how factions could polarize us and pit us against each other. Uh, they had in mind the, the bloody wars uh, in England in the 17th century. Uh, and and uh, and saw that as the greatest danger to our republic. I think, I think that they try to put in place mechanisms to prevent uh, the, the, those dangers from occurring, the separation of powers and so forth. We've all we've been divided, uh, very divided at times. It was only after the most destructive war in our history, our civil war, that we emancipated four million Americans. Uh, we should celebrate that. We should celebrate. I think the rights enshrined in in our Declaration of Independence in the Constitution. But recognize it did take 100 years uh, to remove that, that blight uh, on our history of slavery. Uh, and then we entered another difficult period of, and, and a period of failure, a failure of reconstruction and the rise of the Jim Crow segregationist South and the Ku Klux Klan. And, but I think we, we can take pride in, in the progress in terms of quality of opportunity, especially that, 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 uh, that accomplishment, uh, accomplishments that manifested themselves in the 1960s uh, associated with the civil rights movement and the dismantlement of de jure segregation and inequality of opportunity. But hey, we can still recognize, right, that we have a lot of work to do. We still have de facto inequality of opportunity. We have to work on education. There's so much, I write about this in, in the conclusion of the book, that we can work on together. 
if we strengthen, I think, our common identity as Americans. What I'm seeing today, Nick, is this interaction between identity politics uh, with bigotry and racism in a way that's creating these centripetal, centripetal forces on the fringes that, that, is, that are spinning us uh, faster and faster and tearing us apart from each other. I think history plays a role in this. We ought, we ought to take pride in our history, not a contrived, happy view uh, of our history, but I think recognize the great gift that we have in democracies, uh, that we do have a say in how we're governed. I think we should take pride in the fact that people want to immigrate to our countries. I mean, there aren't too many people trying to immigrate to China. <laughs> and so I, I think that we should talk less about who we don't want in our countries and talk more about who we, who we need uh, to, to, to strengthen our countries in the area of, of immigration, for example. So I, you know, America's been through these crises before. Uh, we've been able to emerge from them stronger. And, and I want to just do all I can to contribute to, to that cause. Um, and, and I hope this book contributes to at least bring us together around issues of foreign policy. Let me bring in uh, Andrew Hasty, who's chair of the Joint Parliamentary Committee on Intelligence and Security and a former uh, troop commander in the Special Air Services Regiment. Andrew. Um, can I start by just uh, reading a quote from, from a letter uh, that's about 11 years old? If the history of Afghanistan is one great stage play, the United States is no more than a supporting actor, among several previously in a tragedy that not only pits tribes, valleys, clans, villages and families against one another, but from at least the end of King Zahir Shah's reign has violently and savagely pitted the urban, secular, educated and modern of Afghanistan against the rural, religious, illiterate and traditional. It is this latter group that composes and supports the Pashtun insurgency. Um, this was from a letter written by Matthew Ho, a US State Department official who resigned in 2009 while serving in Zabul province. I was there as a 26 year old lieutenant and that letter rang true to me then through what I was experiencing. It rang true in 2013 and it still rings true today. And I just would like to ask you uh, how long do we have to stay in Afghanistan? And what are the risks of leaving early? Yeah. Well, you know, I, I, I would just say thanks, Andrew, for, and thanks for your service in Zabal. I've been there a number of times. We were there at a very tough period of time, actually, uh, during which uh, you know, we were intensifying operations against the Taliban after, you know, after vacating a lot of that space uh, under the assumption that, you know, that, that, that peace in the South uh, was, was to be taken for granted. And, and it was our Australian forces, uh, Canadian and British forces that, that really had to step up uh, heavily uh, during that period of time. So thanks for your service there. I, 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 um, I think that the narrative is wrong, Andrew, about, about Afghanistan. I think we already won and we just don't know it. We just don't, we don't talk about it that way. Uh, I think it, it, we don't want to cheapen the sacrifices of soldiers that are still taking risks and making sacrifices. For example, you know, we, had, we had 10 uh, US soldiers uh, make the ultimate sacrifice in, in Afghanistan this year. But I think it's worth pointing out that 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 about 30 Afghan soldiers and police die every day fighting to preserve the freedoms that they've earned uh, after the defeat of the Taliban or the removal of the Taliban uh, in, in 2001. And and you know I think what what is tragic about what we've done now in Afghanistan is we've partnered with you know as you mentioned you know the five or ten percent of the population uh, that might be sympathetic uh, to, to to the Taliban or elements of the, of the Taliban, uh, certain tribes that are affiliated with the Taliban, uh, against the 90% that want to have, have nothing to do with, with, with the Taliban because they remember, right? They remember what it was like 
from uh, during the Civil War, but then especially from '96 to 2001. So, you know, I, I think that that we just we just thought of, went about it the wrong way. We thought we misconceived, uh, that, you know, really what our role would be there in an enduring basis. And I think we were down to quite a manageable level of effort uh, in terms of you know the size of the force and the expense and and the sacrifices that we our soldiers would be called on to make as Afghans increasingly are bearing the brunt of this fight. As you know, probably if you're tracking this closely, uh, there's a major offensive going on in Helmand province uh, now. Um, this offensive would not have been possible uh, if we had not entered into the agreement with the Taliban, an agreement in which, Andrew, we just gave up way too much. I mean, we just made concession after concession, right? And, and what we essentially did uh, is force the Afghan government into a very difficult position in, in, in which they've really given up much of their leverage with the release of these 5,000 of the most heinous people on earth. Um, and then the Taliban in Qatar, and I have this from you know friends who were there, uh, Afghan friends who were there, with the Taliban's message is, is to the Afghans, hey, why are we talking to you? We just defeated the world's greatest superpower. You know, who are you, right? And so what that does is beg the question then, Andrew, like what does power sharing with the Taliban look like? Is it mass executions in the soccer stadium every other Saturday? Is it every other girls' school bulldoze? Are we willing to just bear witness uh, as, as, as bystanders to that? And of course, as we know, you know, problems in that part of the world don't stay there. You know, whether it's jihadist terrorism or, you know, or a virus for that matter. You know, but but uh, you know, I, I think that we're recreating in many ways the conditions that led to 9/11, um, and and uh, you know, this idea that you can have offshore counterterrorism operations. I mean, that's what we did. In 1998, right when we fired a few cruise missiles at Osama bin Laden, and called it a day, right, and we know what happened uh, just three years later. So, I mean, that my, that's my argument, Andrew, is that that we can. You know, there are no short-term solutions to long-term problems, right? and, and yeah. uh, we, we can't afford, and we don't have the will to do all this ourselves. We can't do it, right? But but we can enable others who are willing to bear the brunt of, of these efforts. Uh, former Thanks. Major General uh, Jim Molan was the Chief of Operations for the new headquarters multinational force in Iraq. He's currently the Deputy Chair of the Senate Committee on Foreign Interference through social media. Jim, uh, I'm glad to see you on the call. What's your question? Uh, Nick, uh, thank you for that. And General, uh, good to see you. Uh, for the last 75 years, uh, we've really been a strategic free zone. You talk about strategic narcissism. I would see that as an absolute benefit for us when we don't have a national security strategy. Uh, but uh, for, for those last 75 years, we've essentially lived off uh, American power and we've become extraordinarily prosperous and very, very secure. Uh, we now look at China, General, and we, we are very, very concerned about China, as is the world. And we look at Chinese military power and economic power, et cetera, but we fail to look at US power. And I've made the point often in Australia that we in Australia have fixed in the back of our minds, we don't have to do much because the Americans will always come to our aid. Their power is infinite. And I shared that view when I went to, uh, initially went to Iraq. Uh, I, I very much understand it's different now. General, I make the point that since the end of the Cold War, US military power, perhaps not in numbers, but in ability to do things has, has decreased from 30 to 50%, from two and a half wars back to one war and a hold in another war. And we know the reasons for that, but, but does, that, does that sit true with you, 
do you, uh, do, am I safe in making that statement because it's critical to the impetus for us to develop our own strategy and resources? Yeah. Well, Jim, this is a, this is a very important point, right? So it, it, power is relative, right? And and military capabilities are, are relative. It's very clear that that, that our relative our power relative to the People's Liberation Army has decreased, based as you already alluded to on these vast investments. You know, over eight hundred percent increase in, in in military spending since the mid nineties uh, for the PLA. And and I think what is what is concerning is that 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 uh, much of that increase has been pretty smart in terms of investing in capabilities that 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 from the Chinese perspective they think take take away our differential advantages and our differential advantage has been for quite some time our ability to integrate joint operations very effectively and this is operations across all domains land sea air undersea you know air, uh, space and cyberspace and these disruptive capabilities include as as you know as we've seen, anti-satellite capabilities, offensive cyber capabilities, electronic warfare capabilities, uh, long-range missiles and hypersonic missiles that pose a threat to, you know, to, to surface targets and, and warships, uh, tiered and layered air defense, right? So they didn't, they didn't invest big into stealth like, like, like us. They didn't, they didn't build nuclear submarines and, and, and multiple aircraft carriers. Um, and, and I think they invested wisely in some of these capabilities. So we're in a situation now where we have a, a, a problem associated with, uh, with modernization because we need to mod modernize to counter those counters. And then also, you know, we're, we're at, a, at, a, at, a, at a relative strategic disadvantage uh, because uh, we have vacated some of our forward positions of locations. I'd say the Philippines uh, in particular uh, was, was uh, uh, you know, has put us in a position of disadvantage. It was a period of, because really it's it's important I think to realize and I mean you, you know this better than anybody that China you know China is trying to deny us to deny us freedom of movement and action and create areas of primacy that are exclusionary across the Indo-Pacific region. What they have in mind is a new a new version of the tributary system uh, with, with China at, at the at the center. To, to to counter this at least from a military perspective forward position capable coalition forces, and I'm talking now uh, about the U.S. and Australia in particular as treaty allies, uh, it, it, it changes that dynamic instantly from denied space to contested space because you're already there. And so I think that you know, some, of these, uh, you know, some of these new uh, tactics that the Marine Corps is experimenting with, for example, uh, the ability to project power across multiple domains, which is now our doctrine, all of that is useful. It all applies within our alliance uh, as well. So we have a problem of modernization, which was going to require investment to reduce our vulnerabilities to to these to these capabilities. I think the U.S. withdrawal from the from the INF treaty because of Russia's violation of that treaty. This is the Intermediate Nuclear Forces Treaty was a, a very positive development as applied to the Indo-Pacific as well, uh, because China has, as you know, invested in these intermediate-range uh, missiles. Uh, in a way that did give them kind of an anti-access uh, capability. Um, so I, I think that our, some of our, many of our trends are in the right direction. Uh, but what we have to do primarily is deter the, the PLA, deter them by denial, which means that they're, they're, you know, they're kept, by their calculations, they will be unable to accomplish their objectives with use of force. And, and, uh, and so that's going to take resolve. It's going to take investment across you know, all of our militaries. And, um, and, and, and certainly, I think Australia is going to play a pivotal role there. 
I think Japan will play a very important role here as well. You know, I, I think that you know the, the increased capabilities of the of the of the uh, self defense force in Japan that that's an important initiative. But I think also now you know these 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 nascent partnerships with other countries uh, in the region as well. I mean, uh, uh, hopefully, in a post Duterte Philippines, a, a more rational you know leader is there who recognizes the Philippines interests uh, do clearly align with, with ours. Uh, and then, of course, there are tremendous opportunities uh, in, in Vietnam uh, and other places. Uh, so, so I, anyway, I, I think that I think the trends for us are, are not are in a positive direction diplomatically, and then militarily, we just uh, you know you know what I think about as a as a metaphor, and you know I, I don't want to over you know, emphasize this, but but you know Japan's strategy in World War II was to conduct a centripetal offensive, seize the the the, the inner island chain, and just make it too darn costly for the U.S. To penetrate that island chain, they didn't think that America had the stomach for it, right? So they miscalculated. We did have the stomach for it, uh, but I think if you think about that that, Jap that that Japanese World War II concept, and then you just flip it, that was oriented outward, right, toward Hawaii and the United States. If you orient a concept like that inward, China has a real problem on their hands, right? And and uh, you know they're they're just destroying ecosystems in the South China Sea. They're militarizing those islands. But hey, those are islands. If you have capable missile forces, they look like targets to me, you know. So I, I think that that with the right the right right suite of capabilities, the right strategic concept, the right partnerships and alliances, uh, that we will be able to maintain our deterrent capability. But you know what what you can't predict is what Xi Jinping will do. Look at what he's doing opposite of Taiwan right now uh, with the marshalling of missiles, the increasingly uh, threatening language. And you know, what if Xi Jinping thinks he's winning? And what if the PLA is believing their own propaganda right now, right? And and, and uh, so I think of the Hainan uh, Island incident years ago uh, with an overly aggressive pilot. I mean, I think that that these are all flashpoints, dangerous flashpoints right now uh, across, across the Indo-Pacific region. Uh, you mentioned Taiwan there. Um, I might bring in at this point Peter Jennings, Executive Director of the Australian Strategic Policy Institute. Peter? I really want to ask a question that follows directly from what you've been saying to Jim about Taiwan. Um, we've seen uh, over a number of years, China has progressively tried to narrow the space for other countries to engage with Taiwan. And then in recent months, we've seen an aggressive ramping up of Chinese military exercising, uh, infringing Taiwanese airspace and sea space, um, and a rejection of the, the middle line in the Straits as being a uh, uh, an area to uh, observe. Uh, and we've seen a significant ramping up of Chinese rhetoric about incorporating Taiwan in back, as they would put it, into the mainland. Do you think this gives rise to um, an, a short-term risk? Uh, I'm thinking of, you know, perhaps an uncertain presidential election outcome through to June of next year when it's the 100th anniversary of the creation of the Communist Party. What's your view about the, the prospects that we might actually face, you know, in a matter of weeks, a really serious military crisis across the Straits? I think the chances are high, Peter. I really do. And that's why I think it's important that we do everything we can to deter that conflict. I think, I think what, uh, you know, what the, the, the uh, Trump administration has done with, you know, the four speeches that were given recently, uh, the, the, the making public of the six assurances to Taiwan, uh, the, you know, the arms sales to Taiwan, I think are immensely important. Uh, I think the qualitative improvements within the Taiwanese military, uh, as well as the as the uh, as the uh, acquisition of 
some of these important defensive capabilities, I think they're in a race, you know, and and uh, and they ought to they ought to be pursuing this obviously with a, with a with a high degree of urgency. Uh, you know, I I, uh, I am I am concerned about it. I think the milestones you laid out, including the uh, the, uh, the the 100th anniversary next year, uh, and I would also say that you know before 2022, certainly this is a period of, of danger, which is before the next Communist Party Congress, and I think when Xi Jinping you know, could actually become you know the, the next Mao and, and leader for life uh, in China, and he has made this obviously his personal priority from the beginning. Uh, so I. I Peter, you're, I mean, I know you follow this yourself. I mean, would you like to, would you mind sharing your thoughts on this with, uh, with us as well? Oh, well, thanks, General. I mean, look, I, I, I am concerned about the, the risks of a crisis across the Straits. Um, I'm not suggesting that this is necessarily a full-on amphibious assault, but I do think that China will attempt to sort of um, uh, sneak up to putting more pressure on Taiwan through a blockade, uh, by applying more economic pressure on Taipei, saying to Taipei, well, look, you know, um, if you if you agree to some timetable for incorporation, we'll be able to sort of, um, you know, open up um, economic engagement a bit more. I think there's also a very significant um, uh, Communist Party fifth column that could be activated inside Taiwan that could create the impression of patriotic citizens calling for, for unification. And it seems to me that China has the option to try to push this, uh, you know, really aggressively, taking every small step and then waiting to see, is the United States going to respond? What will the region do? And if, if it looks like there is um, a distracted America for whatever reasons, well, maybe China will then take the next step and the next. Um, and it does seem to me, uh, you know, General, that, that this is not a problem necessarily five years down the track. It could. It's, it's really starting already, and it could get significant momentum as we get past your own presidential election. And then that 100th anniversary, which is actually a very significant thing for Xi Jinping in terms of what he's promised the Chinese people. Yes. Well, thanks, Peter. I agree completely. And if they can, if they can accomplish their objectives below the threshold of what elicits U.S. response, either because of U.S. being extracted or the means that they, they employ, uh, that are, I think, in many ways similar to Russian new generation warfare that was on display in the annexation of Crimea and the invasion of Ukraine. Um, you know, I, I think that I think you're highlighting exactly uh, the risks that we have to that we have to keep in mind. I might then uh, leave these shores just temporarily and go to Oliver Hartwich in in uh, Wellington. Oliver Hartwich uh, is the director of the New Zealand Initiative. Oliver, thank you, Nick, um, and greetings from Wellington, General McMaster. We've had, of course, a big shift in US policy towards China over the last few years, but we've seen a corresponding shift, of course, in New Zealand as well under the headline Pacific Reset. And uh, that was driven by our foreign minister, Winston Peters. And of course, we had elections uh, last Saturday and Winston Peters is out of parliament. So New Zealand will get a new uh, foreign minister. And I wonder what that means for the Pacific Reset and for, Pacific's, uh, for, for New Zealand's role in the Pacific, especially vis-a-vis -vis China. I wonder whether you have any thoughts on New Zealand's role in the wider Pacific and um, whether you might want to comment on the New Zealand elections uh, results in this respect. Well, you know, I, I, think the, I think the role is immensely important in connection with the, you know, the New Zealand's effort and ability to convene other countries from across the region and, and to, view, to view the, uh, the competition with China 
uh, correctly and, and not as a U.S.-China problem, but to make it clear, hey, this is a kind of a free world, this is a free world uh, China problem, and, and we have to work more effectively uh, to, to, together. You know, our, the U.S. ambassador there in New Zealand, I know, has been very active. He was a great partner for me when I was in the White House. And I think what, one of, the, one of the, the ways in which he was effective is he would convene the ambassadors of like-minded countries with New Zealand government officials to have discussions about, you know, the threat from from Chinese economic coercion on the One Belt One Road, for example, uh, and, and to and to just to generate ideas on how we can work more effectively together. So I, I think New Zealand is a country whose voice is very strong and loud, um, you know, based on on the fact that that you know that you can clarify. I think these you know these I think the, the three myths associated with the competition with China. Hey, that it's a U.S.-China problem. Okay, well, how is that the case when you look at the range of of China's aggression oriented at other countries? The second is that there's not international cooperation on it, right? That it's just you know the U.S. going it alone and Xi Jinping's acting out just because Donald Trump is so darn mean. You know, <laughs> and I think to highlight the highlight the uh, you know the, the degree of international cooperation that's already ongoing. I think New Zealand voice is super strong there as well. And then and then also to ensure the world, you know, because of of, of New, uh, New Zealand's uh, you know, long and historic prioritization of, of, of peace and, and mediation, that, that we're, not false, we're not facing a false dilemma between either accommodating the Chinese part, the Communist Party or, or a disastrous war, right? I mean, this is the, so, you know, the so-called Thucydides trap thesis. I mean, there's actually a lot of ground in between that, right? That, that, and, and there are readers of competition, you know, we, we could re-enter. So I think, uh, I think New Zealand plays, you know, kind of a, a pivotal role from a just its geographic location and where where it sits across the region, uh, but also I think uh, from a diplomatic perspective, and um, yeah, so I I, you know, I think that uh, I think that you know the, the problem is now pretty much inescapable you know for, for all of our countries and and uh, you know I, I think that that's the role that New Zealand's already playing and will continue to play. But any any what are you, any thoughts from from New Zealand on, on this or from this your perspective? Well, I was just going to say that um, you may be the um, one of the few people who actually will miss Winston Peters when he's gone. Um, and it's a different matter, of course, when you're talking about Winston Peters in an international context rather than a domestic one. I think domestically speaking, um, Winston Peters didn't achieve much, but in foreign policy terms, he was a remarkably clear voice. And I don't quite see that after the change of government, we will see the same kind of clarity in our international approach vis-a-vis -vis China. That Winston Peters brought to it because I think um, he's got a long history of actually dealing with the United States and various security advisors going back to Condoleezza Rice really yeah. and um, I'm not quite sure whether we'll have anything um, similar um, in the new Labour government um, under Jacinda Ardern that we're going to get without Winston Peters. Well you know I, I think uh, I think the study that was done on Chinese influence in New Zealand gosh about a year ago now is, is really important. I think educating the public about it. I think you know John Barno is the one who broke ground on this in Australia, really did a, a brilliant job. So I, I think you know maybe educating the public is the best way to you know, make sure that we maintain our resolve, right? And and don't allow China again, you know, to 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 use the strategy of co-option, coercion, and concealment. And and concealment is really concealing the, these aggressive acts. Oh, it's just normal business practices, right? It's, it's really not. One final question from uh, from Tom Switzer, the director of the Center for Independent Studies. Thanks, Nick, and thank you, General. Uh, let me put to you the arguments of uh, professors John Mearsheimer and Stephen Wolfe from Chicago and Harvard Universities, respectively. And and I have to say, I think this is increasingly becoming a, 
a widespread view in many circles in Australia. How can the United States uh, be so focused on East Asia in the face of a rising China threat when A, it remains still heavily engaged in Europe 30 years since the end of the Cold War and the collapse of Soviet communism and the Persian Gulf when America is virtually energy independent? Surely there are limits on America's power in a world that is no longer unipolar and at a time when America faces pressing domestic priorities. How can America be so engaged in Europe and the Persian Gulf and China in that environment? General. Well, I mean, there, there's, there is just a fact to cite, which is that, that our, uh, the, the, uh, the numbers and size of US forces that are employed overseas are at historic lows uh, going back to the end of, end of World War II, uh, that these commitments are sustainable. And I think that what has to be uh, the, the most important argument to make is really what is at stake uh, in competitions and challenges associated with these military deployments, but what is at stake as well from, from a diplomatic perspective, a political perspective, because as you know, many of these military deployments are, are really uh, important because of the political effect that they have in terms of the cohesion of alliance, uh, the ability uh, to, to encourage others to share you know, collective defense burdens. You know, which should be viewed as kind of a bargain uh, rather than having to do it all, all of ourselves. So I, I think that uh, what our leaders have not done effectively in recent years is explain, you know, what's in it for American citizens, right? What are you getting out of out of your armed forces positioned in Europe, for example, or uh, or operating in the Middle East or in South Asia or or across the Pacific? And uh, and so I think that's a communication problem. I, I take this on directly in the book, the so-called Realist School. I also if you're super interested in this, I wrote an essay in Foreign Affairs two, two, two issues ago entitled "Rebutting Retrenchment," and uh, and and what the, what I what I see within the so-called realist school is really a bunch of romantics, you know, who have a romantic view of the world uh, in, in which they believe that our disengagement from these problem sets is an unmitigated good. I believe that this is an extreme version of what I call in the book strategic narcissism, because really what they 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 claim is that others have no aspirations, they have no agency except in reaction to us, right? So if we if we disengage from the Middle East, you know, there wouldn't be a pro jihadist terrorist problem, right? If we, you know, if we weren't on the Korean Peninsula, you wouldn't have uh, a new, uh, North Korea pursuing nuclear weapons. You know, if we if we weren't in Europe and if we didn't advocate for the expansion of the EU uh, and the expansion of, of NATO countries to involve uh, membership by former Warsaw Pact countries, you know, Russia wouldn't be. Uh, as aggressive as they are. So this is a school that really blames us for all of the actions of our adversaries. And, and, uh, and I think it's profoundly you know, narcissistic and, and arrogant. It's, a, it's, it's an ideology, I think, that, uh, that portrays itself as, as, uh, as one of, of great, greater humility, uh, but it is one that I think is, is profoundly arrogant uh, in that it doesn't grant uh, agency uh, to our rivals, adversaries, and, and enemies. Before I let you go, uh, I know uh, you, you've gone out of your way and done so very well in this book, uh, Battlegrounds, The Fight to Defend the Free World, not to talk about politics, but, well, hey. Um, you, you know Donald Trump, you, you, you worked with him, and you talk in the book about his capacity to, to surprise. Is he going to surprise us on that? I'll, I'll, I'll tell you, Nick, I'm the worst guy to ask, right? I mean, so I, you know, I, 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 I took an oath to 
to join our army when I entered West Point at age 17. Uh, I had read a biography of, of George Marshall when I was in high school, and I followed his example of never, I never voted. I voted for the first time last week with an absentee ballot. <laughs> I'm not going to tell anybody how I voted, obviously. Uh, and and uh, I'm probably the worst person to talk about U.S. domestic politics. I mean, I, I, I'm i disappointed, obviously, in the lack of substance in the campaign. You know, the, the, the debate was a debacle. Uh, foreign policy hasn't even come up. You know? And and you know when I when I think about you know about you know the question about U.S. You know, retrenchment and 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 withdrawal, I'm, I'm tempted to to paraphrase uh, the you know the, the you know the quote that's attributed to Trotsky that may or may not be true that you you may not be interested in foreign policy, you know, but foreign policy is interested in you. And I think if you learned anything from COVID, is that the problems that develop overseas, you know, can only be coped dealt with maybe at an exorbitant price once they reach your shores, you know, and and I think that's the argument, you know, for you know for sustained engagement to kind of continue on the on the theme that uh, to continue on the theme that Tom uh, introduced. But uh, hey, what a, what a privilege to be with you. I guess we'll see what happens in a couple in a couple of weeks. I just want you. Know, I just I just want uh, World Cup rugby to come back. You know, I hope that the Six Nations are on schedule. I'm not sure. I don't know what's going on uh, in in, uh, in in your hemisphere, uh, but uh, you know that's 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 part of life that I miss right now. Anyway. And uh, all the best with your book, HR. Thanks, Nick. Thank, thank you so much. Thanks, April. Thanks to all of you. What a privilege it was to be with you. And have a great rest of your day. Take care. My thanks, of course, to HR McMasters and to AmCham Australia for helping to organise that conversation. H.R. McMaster's book, Battlegrounds, The Fight to Defend the Free World, is published by HarperCollins in Australia and is available on Kindle and as an audiobook on Audible. If you'd like to become one of the growing number of people who support these podcasts, you can subscribe to the Mentis Research Centre from just $10 a month, or you can make a tax-deductible donation. To find out more, go to our website, the Mentis Research Centre, at mentisrc.org. I'm Nick Cater. Thank you for listening.